Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Scott McAllister, at STMcAllister on Twitter. We're going to try a different type of show for this one. In the studio today is just me and George, and we're going to talk about a bit of the work that we're both particularly excited about. That work is version two of our full service ownership ops guide. We haven't really talked about ops guides before. So George, do you want to tell our audience what ops guides are? Sure. Ops guides are something I think are fairly unique for our industry. They're sort of like a white paper, except they're actually useful. They're a step-by-step process guide. Um, And these process guides are vendor agnostic. They're free um, and they're, they're open source frameworks that are designed to walk you through how to accomplish um, you know, newer and more modern types of operational tasks. And, and so I kind of joke about white papers, right? Some white papers actually are kind of useful. But when I say that ops guides are like a white paper, what I mean is that they have a tremendous amount of depth and detail. And what's unusual, though, right, is that white papers are typically about a, a technical product, right? They're deep dives into product specifics. And we start with some generic use case. And the idea is that by following this guide, it illustrates how you adapt this tool to accomplish the things that you need for that use case. And so ops guides are a little different because they focus on process, right? And I think that's something that's that's super needed and super unique um, for the industry. So I'll give you an example, right? Two of our most popular ops guides are incident response and postmortems. And those guides are designed to create a bridge between theory and practice, right? Like we talk about effective incident response, but how do you actually do that in real practicable ways, right? Blameless postmortems, like what even does that mean? And what can you actually do in a real way to help you practice that. And so, you know, it's not like one process works for everyone. And so these process guides are written a little bit like a white paper, right? Like we have this generic type of use case that we're going to accomplish. So this guide shows you how to do it in a flexible way that illustrates how these things actually work when you put these theories into practice, right? So ops guides lay out a step-by-step way of doing things you know, that you only typically hear about in conferences or in podcasts like this one. So what we're going to do is today, we're going to talk about a new ops guide that we just recently released. I'm pretty excited about this one. I did not realize I was as excited about this ops guide when I first heard about it as I was towards the end when I saw how this thing was unfolding. And so the ops guide that we're going to talk about today is a step-by-step way to transition into a full service ownership model. And I, you know, sometimes even when I say that, like I get a little eye rolly because it sounds a little different, like full service ownership. Like what does that even mean? So Scott, what is full service ownership? Can you tell us what that is? I see what you're doing there, George. You're seeing if I actually read this ops guide, aren't you? (laughs) See, so actually, yeah. So full service ownership is essentially saying that those who build something are responsible for supporting it all through every stage of its life cycle. It brings developers and product people closer to the customers 
And it leads you to honestly write better software because now you're not just taking code and chucking it over the wall and saying, here, someone else needs to release that. And so uh, taking full ownership of your service that you have is key, I think, to, to making better software. You did read the guide. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, and I think um, uh, what I want to put out there uh, about that term, at least, is I think the term service ownership means a very particular thing, especially with older, more established IT shops. And we are talking about the ways that people own the services that they run in production. But I think the differentiation here is when we call it full service ownership, right? It's it's like taking that full service approach, right? Soup to nuts. We're going to do the whole thing. And in a way, it's talking about DevOps, right? Like how do we take software development and make sure that we own every component of it, including running it in production? That's something a little bit different about this approach. I see. So when we typically do these shows... With guests we have that are outside our team, uh, we ask them this question. But since it's just two of us and we're both hosts, uh, we're going to talk to each other today about the common myths or misconceptions about something. And today, obviously, we're talking about full service ownership. So, George, what are some of the common myths or misconceptions about full service ownership uh, that you want to debunk? Sure. I think one of these um, in our introductory episode I started to debunk, which is the idea that you don't need to run software in production to be a really good software developer. So I've harped on that one before. So I'm going to choose something a little bit different today, which is the myth that this type of approach won't work in my org, right? When I was saying that there are older shops, for example, that have a very you know, defined set of things they mean when they say service ownership. I think these are the types of orgs that I'm talking about, right? Like we've been developing software this way for 20, 30 years, right? And we have tried and true processes and this newfangled DevOps approach, right? That's never going to work here, right? So just take this dev and shove it up your ops and I don't want to hear about it. And <laughs> I think that... <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard like that, that before. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of true. I, I hear that a lot, right? Which is, you know, these newfangled ways are great, but they're just not for us. And I think we, you know, we we see a lot of that with, you know, DevOps transformation in general. And I'm not going to like open this bag here. But what I am going to say is that this guide specifically is set up for organizations that that sort of think about restructuring big monoliths, right? Like we've got a million lines of code that have been developed over the last 20 years. How do we even start to introduce these newfangled operational models to them? And I think, you know, this is one of the things that happened at PagerDuty, and I've seen this happen in a number of other orgs, but at PagerDuty, we had a very big monolithic web application that needed to be restructured, that needed to have different teams responsible for it, right? And this is a model of that approach that we took. And so for those orgs that think this is impossible, it'll never work here, you know, for, for things like that, I always use marathon analogies because I, I'm, I don't want to say accomplished. Um, I've run a number of marathons. I've run like double digit numbers of marathons. I was never a runner ever in my life. And when somebody first told me you're going to run 26 miles, I thought this was impossible. Right. But the way that I did it or the way that I, I was able to do it was I followed somebody's advice and just learned how to run a mile. And then it was running two miles and then three and then five and then 10. And 
this thing that I thought was impossible just really needed to be broken down into small bite-sized chunks. And I just needed to follow a way of thinking about that and to have a kind of a plan for doing that. And I think that's what this guide is all about, right? How do we take that big audacious thing and break it down into manageable ways that you can think about that, right? So if you think this isn't going to work in your org, I definitely challenge you to check out this guide and tell us what you think. George, I didn't know you're a runner. I know it's 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 one of those things. I I'm less of a runner these days, but you know I I can still hang in like the five to ten mile arena. By the way, if you've never done a marathon, I don't recommend <laughs> doing a marathon. <laughs> like half marathon, that's the the right length. But after that, your body just rebels and hates you. So. <laughs> Come talk to me later. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the rundown. I think you just helped me scratch something off of my wish list of things I wanted to do, my bucket list. Uh, <laughs> go cheer on marathon runners. That'll work. That's a much better way to go about there you it. Go. The myth that I wanted to debunk goes along the lines of, you know, that I, I heard a lot of software engineers say, you know, at, at previous jobs that I worked at when I was an engineer and the different engineers in our org said, we work here because we're not on call. We don't want to be on call. And so the, I think there's a misconception that just having full service ownership means that it's the engineers that are the ones who are on the hook for a service and that it runs well. But it's not just engineers that are involved with building a service or building a product or a feature. You have product people who are designing it. You have people writing the documentation. You have support people. So you still have a whole team of folks that are going to be owners of a service. So that that's a, I think that's something that people should keep in mind is it's not just engineers that are on the hook. They're definitely part of it, but we're all part of a team that's getting something out the door. You know, when it comes to being on call, Scott, I got to say one of the one of the things that I have tended to harp on is uh, sort of an, an industry safety view of, you know, supporting the things that you put out there, right? And so there's this great XKCD comic about voting machines, right? And the the panels in the comic kind of start with, hey, ask an elevator engineer about elevator safety. And it's like, yeah, well, all these things could go wrong, but we've built in these enormous resilient safety systems. So generally, you're going to be okay. But you ask software engineers about their code and, oh, God, no, right? We would never you know, take a mission-critical application and rely on buggy software to do that. And I think putting folks on call starts to get to the root of that, right? We've been okay with writing buggy code that might work well in development, but never scales to production because we haven't had to support it, right? And so maybe in the beginning, especially if you've never done that, there's a little bit of a learning curve and a little bit of pain you have to go through, but ultimately putting folks on call is what gets you to building more resilient systems, right? It gets you closer to the problem. It gets you closer to understanding that. And so, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go back to the marathon analogy. Those first few miles, right? Like learning to run three miles was the hardest part. But then after that, between like mile three and mile 15, like your body just cruises. You've done the hard part. And then, you know, you kind of get to the top end of the scale where other problems start happening, right? But we can talk about those later. Yeah. So you mentioned before, as you were teeing up the conversation, that this particular ops guide was taking a different approach to it, the topic. So you participated a lot in the writing. You wrote most of the of the guide. What uh, what are some things that you think people should know about the approach you took? Oh, well, one, uh, I'll say I did a lot of final editing of this guide. I think we had a number of contributors, um, a lot of folks internal and external to PagerDuty. So there, there's a lot of credit to go around. 
But what I will say is uh, I spend a lot of time with sort of the narrative and trying to understand how do we go from, you know, this end state of things that we have, uh, which is a little bit different, right? It's, it's, we know that, for example, PagerDuty went through this and we know what that end state looked like, but we kind of had to go back in time and figure out, okay, well, how did we start and what were the cohesive ways to do that? And like, how do you present that? How do you take, you know, being able to run this marathon and break it down into steps? And I think that is what I got pretty familiar with. And so what I would say is that when it comes to using this guide, one of the things that you should be aware of with any of the ops guides is that when I say they're a framework, the idea is it's not always like a flow chart of do thing A and then B and then C. I think this ops guide in particular is a little bit of a primer around the things that you should be considering. And some of those, some of the things in the guide are very much like a step one, think about the shape of your service, right? And step two, think about, you know, which operational teams are going to become responsible for that. And some things are, you know, a kind of mechanical thing you can follow. And some things in this ops guide are a little bit more of a, well, this is kind of a, a general set of considerations that are a great starter way to think about it. And so if you start answering some of those questions, it'll uncover more. And so it's not necessarily a, you know, just follow these steps. It's think about your organization, think about your technical stack in these particular ways, in this order. And that's going to start really helping you put together a plan that's right for your org, right? Versus this kind of generic thing that we've written. So, you know, Scott, I got to say, one of the main reasons that I wanted to do this podcast with you is because you're a very solid developer. And one of the things that we've talked about on a number of occasions, not in this podcast, is that you've had a lot of interest in learning a little bit more about, you know, DevOps and running software in production and sort of, you know, I think what are really a lot of the practices in this guide. So obviously you've read the guide. Uh, we've put that to the test earlier. Um, so what's your take, man? Like, what did, what did you get out of it? What'd you think about this thing? What I enjoyed about it and was a pleasant surprise for me is because I, you know, when, it, when we all think of new topics, they're kind of a black box, right? And we're kind of nervous about, okay, I, I hear this thing, I, I, you know, this concept of like DevOps topics and DevOps thinking and things. And I'm like, well, I've never really done it because I've, I've only been the engineer and I've kind of, you know, my past life um, never was really part of a DevOps process. And so as I read this guide, I realized, wait, this is putting into place, into words, a lot of things that make sense. And then it allows it to, like you said, be a framework. I like that term as a framework because there's not a lot of frameworks in software that help you guide you in a direction, but yet don't prescribe exactly how to do something, but they tell you how, you know, if we're going to do these common practices, we're probably going to do them in these ways and we're going to define them this way. And so with this guide, it helped define roles of people who deal with the different services, who are on the teams that deal with the services, uh, what they need to do throughout the life cycle, things to keep in mind, how to name things. And that's all those guides, those things that people don't really talk about until you get onto a team and they're like, well, this is the kind of the way we do things. And uh, I think it's nice to provide a guide. That way you have a framework that possibly if you go from one shop to another shop, it has a similar way of thinking, a similar way of, of doing things. Like, oh yeah, this is how we do full service ownership because we follow the same guidelines, the same concepts. It was good for me to see. That's a really interesting observation because one of the things that uh, I think changed as this 
guide got closer to to being published was how roles were defined. You know, I think it's one of those Moore's law things, right? Like you will create mechanisms that kind of mimic the shape of your own organization. And similarly, I think this ops guide had a lot of functional roles defined, right? Like what sort of functional roles do we need in service ownership? And we started to group them into things that mirrored, you know, what the SRE team does at PagerDuty, right? And what development teams, you know, do at PagerDuty and like what project management teams do. And, you know, it's not the same at every organization, right? Every organization has slightly different bounds around who's responsible for what when they have those titles. And so if you use titles like that, in especially in a document like this, they have so many you know, presumptions baked into them that sometimes you don't entirely step back to re-examine, well, where does this function really live? And that's actually one of the things that I really like that might be a little counterintuitive when you first read this, this ops guide. The section on service ownership functions does things like break down, well, who's responsible for documenting what your service does, right? And who's responsible for running that in production? And, you know, we don't put job titles next to that, but we tell you, this is what the function should be, right? These are the kinds of things that you need to put into documentation that's useful by your customers, right? Consuming an API, right? Here are the kinds of things that you should be thinking about when you manage this software in production, right? And so maybe, you know, that's an SRE team in your org or a sustainability team or whatever you want to call it, right? Maybe that's software developers that are doing that as well. But you know what? We're just going to focus on the types of functional support that you need, including things like, you know, thinking about your customer needs, right? Things that are typically owned by product, thinking about ways that you interface with the rest of the business, right? Things that are typically you know, being done by leadership and managers, right? And we're just going to describe all of those things. And then you can figure out how you start assembling those cross-functional teams inside of your own org. Nice. Yeah. Like, like I said, I, I, it's nice to be able to relate it to things that I already know. And so to, to have those guidelines really helps out. So talking about ops guides in general, how do they get written and how do you say they're open source? So can people contribute? How would they do that? Kind of talk about the process that goes on there. Yeah, here's what I'll say about um, our ops guides. I think if you look at some of the more mature ops guides like Incident Response, we've gotten a lot of contributions from other folks that have taken this ops guide and, and you know, forked it or made it their own. You know, we talk to a lot of our customers. We want these communal best practices to be a reflection of what is actually being practiced in the industry. And so here's what I would say. Uh, the PagerDuty GitHub repo has docs, not only for this ops guide, but all of our ops guides. They're formatted currently through MK docs. And so uh, it's mostly marked down. Um, there are some strange conventions going on. And so not everybody is very comfortable, you know, just figuring out where to plug in content or, you know, what they might want to adapt or change. So there are a couple of ways that you can go about it. One, I would highly suggest if you read one of these guides um, and think that it might be useful for you, what you can do is, again, you know, you can fork it, you can make it your own, use those docs in your own organization to start talking about how you do these things. Or if you have contributions to give back, open up a, a GitHub issue, right? Talk to us about what you think should be different or the things that you are seeing in your org. And we can figure out, you know, how that actually plugs into a larger framework. It's really weird, man, because, you know, we're uh, we're a bunch of engineers writing these things. And so I think we have a very engineering mind frame around this. But at the end of the day, this is 
a narrative document, right? Telling you how to do a particular thing. So, you know, just creating a pull request doesn't always merge in super cleanly. But what I would say is talk to us. And in fact, I particularly, I know like the entire team really wants to hear what you have to say. And so I think GitHub issues are the best way to do that. Probably the easiest way to do that. If you find anything, let us know what you think and we can figure out how to plug in your thoughts. So you're saying the pull request that I submitted last night was not the way I should have done it. <laughs> Talk to me, okay. Scott, you know where to find me. Yeah, and you know, and it's and it's totally fine too. Like if you want to write a PR and you're like, you know what, this section is full of crap and here's the view of the world that I think is right. Um, submit it, right? And we can talk about it and we can like figure out, you know, how to plug it in. You know, it's all grammar and wordsmithing sometimes, but like we can treat it like code, right? We'll massage it into the right <laughs> thing that fits. Nice. Yeah, that's what I found. It wasn't anything major. I found a, a uh, an erroneous A was sitting there that didn't make sense. So I thought I could make my own contribution. <laughs> I love it. So are there any common pitfalls or assumptions that are baked into the guide? Yeah, you know what? I think this one in particular, you know, when I was saying that I was pretty stoked about the way that it turned out, I once upon a time spent quite a bit of my career in large enterprise settings. And I think this guide in particular is sort of aimed at folks, you know, when we were talking earlier about, you know, the the people that would say, I can't do this in my organization, that's never going to fly here. I think in a way we've, we've tried to specifically target those teams, right? Which is you have this legacy way of operating that you are interested in adapting to a new model. And I think that's one of the assumptions that's really baked in, right? That you have a big monolithic code base and not necessarily just the code base, but like a way of operating, right? That's monolithic in nature. And you want to start breaking that down into smaller components, right? And if so, this guide is really useful. But, you know, as a greenfield team, you know, approaching a new project, I think this is very useful as well. There's a lot of stuff, especially around service lifecycle, around those, you know, service ownership functions that you can use to think about how you should structure any new project. But I think a lot of the stuff in the guide, you know, tips for success, you know, a lot of the additional stuff that's baked in really, I think, you know, is looking to to speak to those large scale teams that, um, you know, are, are starting with a lot of traditional ways of operating and are, and are looking to change those up. Nice. Well, thanks, George. Where can people find this uh, full service ownership ops guide? Uh, well, you can find this particular ops guide at ownership.pagerduty.com. Right, that's the full service ownership guide. And if you want to find all of the ops guides that we write, uh, you can find those at pagerduty.com/ops-guides. And there you'll see a landing page that has the various bits of training that we offer that are open source. It's more than just the operational guides at present, um, but you can see all of the types of things of this nature that we create that you know kind of focus on that process-oriented view of the world. I'll admit, I have actually been reading the other guides as well to see if I can get as smart as the rest of you all on, on these topics. So they, they've been really beneficial for me. Um, and I, I highly recommend listeners checking them out. That's really good to hear, man, because I think, again, right, th the thing to keep in mind here is that unlike pretty much any of the material that I've gotten a chance to write in my career, one of the things that I really appreciate about what these ops guides are doing is Again, they're they're vendor agnostic. They're not about a particular tool. They're about how your teams operate. And I don't think we see enough folks creating that, right? So um, if you find this content useful, um, reach out to us. Let us know that you like it. Let us know some of the other things you think might be useful to tackle, um, because I think you'll be seeing, hopefully, a lot more of these um, in the coming months.
for sure. So that brings us toward the end of our show. We normally ask uh, some regular questions, some repeating questions to our guests, but you and I, George, we've already answered those questions. So we have some different ones today. Instead, for this one, we're going to do what's called Pagey's Picks, where we pick a few hot things that you should check out. These picks are about everything from tech or not tech, books you're reading, films you watch. So George, tell us about things that you're just super excited about right now. You know what? I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit of how things work around here. So Scott, you and I tried a sample episode when we were thinking about this podcast. You know, we were we were trying different formats to see what would work. And you and I did a sample episode like this to see how it would go. And I had some picks for that episode that I particularly liked. And I actually looked back to see what those were. And I now have those same picks but for different reasons. So I'm going to start with my first pick, which is The Good Place. So The Good Place on NBC just wrapped up. And uh, this show, if you haven't seen it, it's great. It's wonderful. It's one of the most witty, heartfelt shows, I think, that have aired on recent television. And, you know, one of the things that I hear folks uh, have a little bit of trepidation around uh, with a name like The Good Place um, the the show is basically about the concept of heaven and hell, right? And I think some folks that I've talked to have been a little put off because it seems like it might be very religious in overtone. And you know what? It's actually this show that's just sort of grappling with what it means to be a decent person in today's complex world. But it does it in just these really philosophical, uh, funny, resounding ways. There's a lot of sharp one-liners. They've gotten a lot of mileage out of recurring gags. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, like, it's pretty forking funny. So, uh, <laughs> Shirt balls. <laughs> right? If you've never gotten a chance to watch it, season four just wrapped. It was incredibly touching. I'm not going to say a bunch about it. Um, but it's a great time to binge this show if you haven't started it. So, um, so I'm going to highly recommend The Good Place. And then the second thing I'm going to recommend is a drink called the Verbena. So this is, I'm, I'm a little bit of a cocktail connoisseur and uh, you can find this drink if you are in Las Vegas by going to the Chandelier Bar at the Cosmopolitan. It's not on the menu, but if you ask someone for a verbena, what they'll do is bring you out this cocktail that's a little bit like a margarita, but it's served with a Sichuan flower. And I never knew about a Sichuan flower, but they basically call this a buzz button. You take a little bit of a bite of this thing, and what it does is it makes your tongue tingle, and it changes your flavor perceptions as you drink this cocktail. So it starts out tasting a little bit like a margarita, and then it's super sweet, and a little bit creamy and just the flavor profiles of this drink. Like you should try it first before you take the Sichuan flower, but it will blow your mind in terms of how your taste buds and your perceptions of taste can change. So I'm going to highly recommend that if you find yourself in Vegas, like I'm about to, again, go check out this drink. You will not be sorry. So Scott, what are your picks? Let's see. I didn't actually go back to my old recording and talk about the thing or think about the things that I, I talked about on that one. Um, I'm so happy you brought that other recording up. But anyway, so recently I, I just finished an audiobook I was really, I really enjoyed. It's called uh, The Nickel Boys by Corson Whitehead. Uh, fantastic read. It's a, a good reminder of 
how you know you can persevere through hard things, but also how terrible humans can be. And then there's a interesting twist at the end. So I I highly recommend uh, that book. And then recently, I've gotten into a new hobby where I re- just discovered that the small town I live in in Washington actually has two disc golf courses. I mean, we don't have two of anything, let alone two disc golf courses. It's fascinating. I love it. I found it very, very like therapeutic. Yesterday, it was actually sunny here for like the first time in months. And I decided I need, I have, I have 45 minutes. I'm going to get out to the disc golf course and disc golf course, excuse me, and do a quick nine. And it was just so nice. So anyway, disc golf, super cool, really low barrier to entry. If a, if a course is near you, uh, the discs are not quite as expensive as real golf clubs. It's a nice way to get out. And then finally, this other one's kind of off the wall. Interesting. I Last night, as I was actually reading my full service ownership guide, I opened up my record cabinet to see if I could find something I could listen to to kind of put some background on. And I found this old record that I haven't listened to in years. Uh, got it uh, years is like, what, five, six years ago uh, by a band called Inventions. So if you're into kind of atmospheric sort of post-rock stuff, Inventions. Check them out. It's basically you take a, there was a guy who who's called Alluvium, and there was a he mixes with a dude from Explosions in the Sky, whom a lot of people might have heard of, and they kind of mix their sounds together, and it's it's quite nice. I I listened to it several times last night while reading this guide, so uh, I recommend that completely. Scott, that is quite the pick. <laughs> I I am I, I'm really into Explosions in the Sky, and I had not heard of this record so i'm all over it and also for our listeners i'm going to say i have talked to you at a little bit of length around disc golf and it has been absolutely mind-blowing to me just how deep into disc golf you can go and how developed a sport this is and uh as somebody that is terrible at throwing a frisbee you convinced me i also could do it so there's definitely something to this awesome no it's super fun i'm terrible at it just like anybody who goes out and hits a golf ball and just is terrible at it i throw the disc and it'll just go way off in the wrong direction i'm like oh that was bad you know yeah, uh, I should also throw in a plug for The Good Place. I, I've watched the first three seasons because those were on Netflix and uh, loved that show. Super, super witty. Kristen Bell's genius. Just a really, really good show. Right on. Well, all right. Thanks a lot, George, for talking to us about the ownership guide that uh, is now out on the Ops Guides section of the Page of Duty site. This is Scott McAllister at ST McAllister on Twitter. And this is George Miranda at GMiranda23 on Twitter. And we're both wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes on pageittothelimit.com. And you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's at pageittothelimit. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. Beautiful days.